All right, if you could start making your way back to your seats. And I'm going to have Tim uh, come up and uh, read our scripture reading for us. If you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 18. We're going to be reading verses 35 through 19, verse 10. Okay, Luke 18, 35 through 19, verse 10. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. All right, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father God, again, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you for an opportunity to open your word. God, and that we pray that you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, shine a light on this passage. God, that you would shine a light on our own hearts and minds. Um, that you would use um, your word to conform us um, to the image of Jesus Christ. Uh, God, we pray that you would use this time um, to, to bring uh, revival uh, in our own hearts. Um, God, that we would leave this place today... Um, uh, understanding you in a different way, in a better way, in a more true way. Um, God, that we would live in a more faithful way. God, that we would recognize um, places in our own lives where, um, God, we need to follow Christ more more faithfully um, because of what we have, have seen here today. God, that above all, um, that you would be on, uh, honored and glorified, that your truth would be seen uh, and spoken and understood. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, we're kind of jumping back. We've been in and out of Luke for a couple of weeks, and we're jumping back 
in um, to Luke. Um, and and I, a couple of y'all made the comment. You were like, man, that's a big passage, Ash. Like you're usually like doing two or three passages at a time. And we're like doing literally two different stories um, at, at the same time. But I think it's because they have a thematic connection. And probably you have noticed it as, as Tim read those passages for us. The thematic connection there is that, that we, it's two stories about people who want to see Jesus. Okay. Um, and, and there was, there was a, 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 a thought that popped into my head is sort of an illustration that I think ties into, um, uh, our passages today. Probably many of you have seen the movie, uh, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace is the story of William Wilberforce, who is a British parliamentary politician, um, in the late 1700s, who was uh, influential, um, and in fact, almost solely responsible in some ways for the abolition of the slave trade in, in the nation of Great Britain. And so the movie kind of tells the story of that. And the main part of the story focuses on his attempts through parliament to try to get uh, the slave trade abolished. Um, but the deal was, is that William Wilberforce was a committed Christian. In fact, his desire to see abolition happened started, came from, um, his Christian faith. Okay. And so, uh, they have to connect it, even though that doesn't seem to be the main focus of the movie. Um, they have to, they have to pay tribute to that at the very beginning of the movie. And so there's this brief scene at the beginning where essentially, um, Wilberforce has sort of a conversion experience and, and he's sitting in his garden one day talking to his gardener and he's, he's talking about the fact that he just wants to reflect on God and, and, uh, in his glory and, and, and things. Um, and he makes the comment, the gardener says to William Wilberforce, he says, have you found God, Mr. Wilberforce? And he responds, I think God found me. All right. That ties into this story, okay? Because what we are going to see is that we have these men who are seeking to see Jesus, but in a sense, it's been Jesus who has been looking for them the entire time, okay? So let's kind of jump in. We're going to talk about three kind of different ideas as we go through the passage. But starting there at the beginning, um, we see this idea in both of these two stories. There are people, these people are people who can't see Jesus, but people who do see Jesus, they see Jesus for who he truly is. Two pictures of men who are physically blind and yet have spiritual sight. The first blind man is the one that we see sitting by the roadside in, in chapter 18. And here's something interesting. All three of the synoptic gospels record this story, although each of them re- re- record it with slight variations. And if we're right to to correlate all three of those stories, if they're all three stories talking about the same event, then the blind man that is referred to here, who's not named in the Gospel of Luke, but he is named in the Gospel of Mark, and, and this guy's name is Bartimaeus. Okay, So probably many of you are familiar with that if you've been in the church for any amount of time. This character of Bartimaeus. Lots of times in the Gospels, we don't know the actual name of people that Jesus is ministering to, but we do for Bartimaeus, or as you probably called him when you were in Sunday school, blind Bartimaeus. All right? Bartimaeus suffers from literal blindness, physical blindness, a condition that basically has forced him to be a beggar. He can't do anything else. And so he sits at the city gate. He sits along the roadside asking for alms as people walk by. But the cool thing about the passage is that his physical blindness is juxtaposed with this incredible spiritual insight and spiritual vision. When Bartimaeus discovers from the crowd 
that Jesus is approaching, he cries out for mercy. Not just for charity, not just for Jesus to give him uh, a handout, essentially, but for healing from his blindness. Now, here's the deal. Why does Bartimaeus think that Jesus can accomplish that? Why does Bartimaeus think that Jesus is capable of that? Well, on one side, certainly he's probably heard about Jesus. He knows that Jesus is a miracle worker who's been going around doing stuff like that. But I think there's something more to it than that. And what's significant is the title by which Bartimaeus addresses Jesus. You probably noticed it. When he calls out to Jesus, he says, son of David, have mercy on me. So son of David is a phrase that has not been used in the book of Luke before. And it will not be used in the book of Luke again. We see it a few other times in the other Gospels, but it is unique in this passage. And the key to the the important thing about that title, Son of David, is in the Jewish faith of the first century, it was specifically a messianic title. All right. The Son of David who was to come is specifically referencing the Messiah who is going to be the heir of the throne of the David, who is going to come and whose kingdom will have no end. What the blind man in this passage sees is something that the Pharisees couldn't see that we just read about in chapter 18. They were unable to see this. Even the sincerity of the rich young ruler in chapter 18, who comes wanting to know Jesus, wanting to know how he can have eternal life, Even he does not recognize Jesus as this person. He calls him a good teacher, but not as the Messiah. And yet, this man sees that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised heir of David. His his eyes are incapable of seeing Jesus, but his faith sees Jesus more clearly than probably almost anybody we've encountered so far in the Gospel of Luke. Recognize this, this man is the first person outside of Jesus' entourage to acknowledge Jesus as Messiah. Isn't that crazy? That nobody else to this point, other, I mean, we remember the story where Peter is asked, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Messiah, okay? His inner circle recognized his Messiahship. But the world has not exactly recognized that. But this man does in the Gospel of Luke. And so he is the first outsider to acknowledge Jesus as Messiah, at least in the Gospel of Luke. He sees clearly with his eyes of faith, just like it says in 2 Corinthians 5, we walk not by sight, but we walk by faith. Bartimaeus is our exemplar for that idea. And what do we see? Jesus makes a specific connection. He says, your faith has healed you. That word healed is a cool little word. It's the word sozo in Greek, and it can mean healed, but it can also mean saved. And so we could just as easily translate that passage, your faith has saved you. And that's exactly what has happened. This man has not only received healing and received his sight, but he has received salvation. Why? Because he has had faith in Jesus, the Messiah. All right, then we see this second story that comes, another named character in the passage. And where that first story about Bartimaeus is in every single one of the synoptic gospels, this story is only found in the gospel of Luke. And it's the story of a man who is also physically handicapped so that he cannot see Jesus. The difference is, is his eyes work fine. It's his stature that is the problem. 
Because you see, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And when the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and said, Zacchaeus, you come down for I'm going to your house today. Until I put that in this sermon, I didn't realize what a terrible rhyme it is. Like, it's like the worst little song. Like, there's there's barely any song to it. It's just like a bunch of phrases stuck together, okay? But we know the story of Zacchaeus, right? We know the story of the wee little man who climbed up in the sycamore tree. He is unable to see Jesus because of the crowds, because of his stature. But just like Bartimaeus, his persistence leads to him being able to see Jesus, okay? Just as Bartimaeus was called down by the crowds and yet he called out even more, Zacchaeus is hindered by the crowds and yet he finds a way to see Jesus. That's kind of important because notice how both these men in a variety of ways are becoming examples of all the principles we talked about in chapter 18. Do you remember what we talked about at the beginning of chapter 18? about the persistent widow whose dogged determination led her to receive justice that she had hoped for, right? Both these men demonstrate that kind of persistence. Persistence in the face of opposition, persistence in the face of impediment, and and even for Zacchaeus in the face of convention. Another cool connection with chapter 18. While Bartimaeus has this faith that is an example of that unmerited, received like a child faith that we talked about in chapter 18, verse 17. Zacchaeus's story, on the other hand, never mentions faith, and yet his actions demonstrate that faith. His restitution to the poor, his restitution to the people that he has defrauded, that he promises demonstrates his faith. That's something that even the rich young ruler failed to do, right? When he was asked to give to the poor, he wouldn't do it. Zacchaeus has responded to his worldly wealth, not as a slave to it, but as a slave to Christ. And just like Peter and the apostles, do you remember again in chapter 18, Peter and the apostles say, but Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. Does that mean anything? Is there any value to that? And Jesus says, you will be richly rewarded for that sacrifice. Not because that sacrifice has earned you salvation, but that you have responded rightly to the grace and welcome of Jesus. That he is extended, that he is asked to, for you to come into his presence, that he is asked for himself to come into Zacchaeus' home. And so the reality is this, these men see Jesus for who he really is and respond to that accordingly. And even here, though, we suspect that, man, it's not because they get it, it's not because they're better, it's not because they're smarter, it's because the grace and mercy of Jesus is working in their lives and drawing them to him. Now, here's the deal. In both stories, these men's physical impediments, the blindness and the height issue, are the immediate cause of them not being able to see Jesus. But we also notice something in both stories that also impedes them seeing Jesus, and that is the crowds. In both stories, 
Those who are followers of Jesus are also responsible in some way for these men's inability to see Jesus. So that kind of brings us into this second idea that we see in this, these two passages. The followers of Jesus are sometimes a hindrance to people actually being able to see Jesus. For blind Bartimaeus, when he discovers that Jesus, the son of David, is passing by and cries out for mercy, what does it say in verse 39? Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. Those who led the way can, it's got to refer to either the people who are part of Jesus' entourage, maybe the disciples, or at the very least, people from the town who have come out to see Jesus because they've heard about him and want to know what he's about and, and want to follow him. And what do they say to this man who's crying out for mercy from Jesus? They say, hey, buddy, shut up. Pipe down. Be quiet. Stop making a scene. Stop calling out to Jesus. Presumably because they think Jesus doesn't have time for his ish, the, the issues that this man has. Jesus is an important man on a mission. He can't be bothered with issues from some blind, nobody beggar who has popped up. So Bartimaeus has a problem with the crowds, but guess what? We presume that Zacchaeus has a problem with the crowds too, but maybe in a slightly different way. It's not explicit in the text, but our suspicion is that there is more going on with his inability to see than just his height, and it has to do with his occupation. Because here's the reality, his, his height shouldn't be that big a deal, right? So what if you're short? Just move up to the front of the crowd, and you'll be able to see fine. But he's unable to do that. That forces him to take these drastic measures and do something particularly undignified for a man of his wealth and his stature, and that is climb up a tree, right? We've talked about that before, man. If you're wealthy, if you're rich, if you're the father of a household, and you don't run, you don't get worked up, you don't climb trees. Um, other people do these things for you. And yet he has to climb up this tree. Why can't he get to the front? Why can't he get to the front of the front of the crowd? Well, we are told that he is the chief tax collector. A tax collector, as we've talked about many times, was seen as a traitor to his nation, complicit in the occupation by Rome. As a tax collector, it was not uncommon for him to be taxing people extra money so that he could line his own pockets. And you know what? The very fact that it says he was the chief tax collector probably indicates that he was even better at doing that than the other tax collectors around. And so the reality is, as we assume, when Zacchaeus tries to push his way to the front, he is probably booed and hissed and rebuffed and forced to the back of the crowd. Why? Because he's an enemy. He's an outsider. Now, we should pause to make a point about these two men and the situations they find themselves in. In Luke's gospel, these guys, the blind man and the tax collector, are the typical kind of character that we have seen Luke flip over and over again for the reader. Luke has recognized many times his particular concern for the marginalized. Right, His particular concern for the outsider. And so while we 
or a first century Jewish person would have seen that tax collector as the villain. Luke has consistently shown us that the tax collectors are probably as likely or more likely to follow Jesus than, than many of the people who would normally be considered righteous. And so while not all the individuals in the world are so sincerely seeking Jesus as these two men, or maybe seeking him at all, these two guys are. They are people who are seeking after Jesus. And we see lots of folks in the scripture and in the world who are not attracted to Jesus at all, but these men are. And yet, despite their, their trying to get to Jesus, it's the people who are already following Jesus who are the ones who are dissuading them, who are somehow pushing them out. They are the greatest impediment that these men have to seeing Christ himself. So again, maybe we can glean something from these two examples, okay? There are Bartimaeus-type people in the world. People whose life situations make them a lot of work, okay? People who it just seems like it's going to be a burden and a lot of work to try to engage these people and, and have them connect with Jesus, there doesn't seem to be any other reason that they, the people would have not wanted blind Bartimaeus to come to Jesus, other than the fact that it was going to be some sort of hassle or that Jesus didn't have time for it. Maybe, maybe it's because his blindness might have been interpreted as him having sin and hidden in his own life or in his families or something, but probably not. The primary issue probably just seems to be that this guy's a distraction and an annoyance. And then there are also Zacchaeus type in the world, right? There are Zacchaeus types whose sin and lifestyle have probably burned a whole lot of bridges. The way they have lived their life have turned people off and hurt lots of folks. And in turn, they have been ostracized by their communities. Some people might even say, you know what? Zacchaeus deserved to be treated like that. And yet, nevertheless, it is the crowd that keeps Zacchaeus from seeing Jesus, not Zacchaeus himself. So I think it's always appropriate for us to consider something, and that is this. Are my actions and attitudes responsible for keeping people from seeing Jesus? Am I living in patterns of sin that lead others to marginalize the truth and significance of who Jesus is? Or does my own self-interest keep me from doing the hard and costly work of reaching out to people, of sacrificing for people, of forgiving people? I think the case is, is that probably every single one of us would hope that our lives did not contribute to pushing people away from Jesus, and yet there are ways in which every single one of our lives does push people away from Jesus. So I've had several conversations with some of y'all over the last couple of weeks um, about the specific idea of our witness as Christians in the world in this time that we live in. Okay? And we've talked about this idea over and over again about we are called to speak the truth in love to the world. Okay? We have to speak the truth. We have to do that in love. And the reality is that probably each of us gravitates to one side of that or the other, okay? 
for most of us, it's probably either easier to speak in love to people or it is easier to speak in truth to people. The problem is, is that because of our sin, the people who speak in love are always being sort of pulled towards affirmation of sin, right? It's hard for us to come to a point where we actually have to say the hard truths because we keep on speaking in love and we just keep on drifting towards affirming the sin in people's lives. By the same token, those who speak truth are slowly pulled by their sin, not just to speak the truth, but to be judgmental, to be vindictive as they speak the truth to other people. Okay? I think all of us find ourselves in one of those two situations. You can probably, if we call for a raising of hands, which category you fall into, you could probably pretty easily figure out which one you were in. You're a truth teller or are you a person that loves? Okay? Because we're probably all one or the other, primarily. Now, what I think the case is, is that Jesus sits at the top. Jesus has perfectly balances those two things. Jesus never condescends to sin. And yet, the people that we see Jesus calling out for sin are drawn to him and drawn to repentance and drawn to the salvation and forgiveness that he provides. That's a hard place to find, though, for us, right? And so whether it is the overturning of Roe this week or Pride Month or the George Floyd stuff or election stuff or any other thing in our culture, right? I think we all feel this. We are nervous to say anything and we are nervous to say nothing, right? Like there's something in us that says, man, I feel like I ought to say something. And then there's another piece in us that goes, man, I'm scared to say anything. We feel like truth needs to be spoken. Things need to be said. Things that take courage and conviction to say. And yet, man, I know it's going to come off as unloving sometimes. Where is the balance for that? Because, man, I'll tell you what. And here's the other side. And this has been the reality over the last two days. I have seen some vile things on on social media. Like the things that people have said in response to Roe versus Wade being overturned. I have seen some things that confession time make me not want to speak truth or love to people at all. Big brother syndrome, way back, right, from the story of the prodigal son. Makes me want to go... Good riddance, see ya, okay? But here's the deal. That's not what we see in this passage because the reality is, is while it is very hard for us to find that place where it is, where we can speak truth and love at the same time, you know who doesn't have a problem with it? It's Jesus. Jesus doesn't seem to have a problem with those things in this passage. In the end, both these men need mercy Both of them are trying to see Jesus. Both of them have people trying to interfere with that. And yet what we see in this passage is these men were not just looking for Jesus, but really Jesus was the one looking for them in the passage. When we come to the very end of Zacchaeus' stories, there's two things said that kind of sum up a lot of the stuff that we should, at least two ideas that we should hold on to as we go into this stuff. Jesus responds with a reminder when Zacchaeus has, has, has believed and made restitution or says he's going to make restitution, Jesus says two things. He says, 
Salvation has come to this man's house because he too is a son of Abraham. Okay, what does that mean? What is the point that he is making to the crowds? This man too is a son of Abraham. I think what in general that means is he's saying, this guy is like all of you. He's not any different than any of you. We have a common humanity. We have a common um, sin nature. We have a common um, fact that God has come to call us and to, to redeem us. This man is a child of Abraham. And the reality is, is you're just like these guys, crowd. You're just like Bartimaeus. You are just like Zacchaeus. Think about the fact that some of these followers of Jesus that are telling people to shut up and go away, those people calling down Bartimaeus, they are almost certainly the people that we've read about in the Gospel of Luke who have been healed of their diseases, of their blindness, of their leprosy, of their issues. People whom Jesus took time to deal with their mess and and, and cleanse and save them. Moreover, certainly those are people who have repented of sin and trusted in Jesus and sought to follow him. And so, you know what? I'm sure those crowds were looking and saying, man, that Bartimaeus guy, he's going to be a lot of work. And Jesus is essentially saying, hey, man, you're a lot of work. Okay? You're a lot of work too. People are looking at Zacchaeus and saying, he deserves to be treated like that. And Jesus is saying, you deserve to be treated like that. And yet I have shown you mercy. I've been gracious to you. I've called you into my presence. So now you need to extend the same kind of love, mercy, and grace to those people. Okay? And so he says, this man's the son of Abraham too, but then you notice that the last phrase, and man, this is one of those ones that you hold on to. It says that the son of man, that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. The crowds, again, I think maybe thought they were protecting Jesus from something, from nuisance or from unsavory characters or from scandal. But the reality is, is those are the very people for whom Christ has come, right? You're not protecting Jesus from hassle. You're protecting Jesus from his purpose and mission. They were looking for Jesus But those men didn't realize that Jesus was apparently looking for them first. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. His desire is not passive for these people, right? Here's the deal. Don't think about it like this. Well, Jesus was just randomly walking through this town, and he happened to come across a couple lost people, Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus, and he thought, well, while I'm here, I guess I might as well heal and save these people. That's not what happened. Jesus came to these towns, and in both stories, as these men call out, Jesus says, hey, you come to me. Hey, in one of the stories, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to go to your house. I'm going to enter into your world. His desire is not passive. His whole purpose is actively to seek out those who he will save. He's searching for them. He wants to see them. He wants to call them to himself. Jesus is seeking for men like Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus. Broken sinners, man. These guys have got problems, both of them. And yet they want to see Jesus and Jesus is ready to welcome them. And it isn't an imposition for him. It's the reason that he came. 
Okay. And so, man, I just want to close. And again, it's a weird time. Okay. Um, I'm not, I, I, I unreservedly, unreservedly am thankful and happy for the decision that was made by the Supreme Court yesterday. Okay. But that doesn't mean that there's not a, still a whole lot of gentleness and work to be done. Okay. Truth has to be spoken and people have to be loved. And again, I got a feeling like we're going to mess up that a lot. Okay. We're going to do it poorly in all kinds of different ways. All right. That's the mess that it is of being broken, fallen, sinful people who are, who have received grace and are just trying to do the best they can. Okay. But it still leaves for us the reality that we have to hold those things in front of us to say, Man, how can I be honest with people about their sin, about the reality of these things, about the reality of all this stuff that we find in our culture? How can I be honest? Because without honesty, there is no repentance, okay? Not a single person is ever going to come to Jesus Christ by you going, it's no big deal. Your stuff, it's no big deal. Don't worry, it's no big deal. You just keep on doing what you're doing. God loves you anyway. Not a single person is ever going to repent in that context, Okay, it takes being confronted with the truth to turn to Christ in repentance, but it also takes the mercy and grace that he has extended to us to then say out of that repentance, I will seek Christ and let him come into my life. Okay, we want to be agents of that, not people that hinder that. And so all I would say is I can't ask you to do it right because I can't do it right. I'm just asking you to be careful and thoughtful and prayerful about those things in the coming days and weeks, okay? Because sometimes it's going to go really well, and sometimes it's not. Um, I had a conversation. I've, I've told you a hundred times, Facebook is not the place to have these conversations, but I did it anyway. And and I had a conversation with this dude. He's a former youth guy at our, our church. He, he's not been to church in a long time. And he said, I, I put a thing on Facebook, and he said, yeah, but Ash, what about this? And I said, hey, man. Thanks for asking. He even commented and said something like, I just wanted a, a respectful, you know, I'm not, not trying to, not trying to zing anybody. I just have a question. And I said, Hey man, thanks for your attitude. Here's my answer. It's not short. Um, and, and I wrote it. And then he came back then and said, Hey, thanks man. Really good answer. I don't know if he agrees with me or not. Right. But it worked really. It, it was, it was a respectful way to talk about those things. That doesn't happen every time right at all okay and so i'm not saying i did anything particularly right necessarily because sometimes you're going to try your best and man it's still going to fall apart that's the reality of of being who we are but knowing this jesus will do it right every time okay so you know what i would do for one is keep on turning people to jesus um don't don't try to convince them with your arguments keep on sending people to jesus christ and as they see Jesus Christ in the scriptures, I think there will be, there will be no better argument for any of these things than to see the love and grace and the conviction that comes through knowing Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we live in turbulent times, um, and uh, God, things are changing quickly. Um, God's sides continue to form. People are pushed to the extremes. They are radicalized. We are put into our tribes. 
in our sects and, and we, we are, are pulled along by the energy of those, of those groups. God, we ask that in the midst of all this turbulence and upheaval, um, God, that we would continue to be people who, um, demonstrate the truth and the love, um, God, the, the reality of who you are in your word, and yet at the same time, the gentleness and mercy that we have been shown in Jesus Christ. God, that you would help us to be people who demonstrate these values to a, a lost and dying world. We know um, that we're not going to do it right every time. And we know that even when we do it right, it is not going to be received rightly every time. God, we just ask that your spirit would go before us, that you would move in people's hearts, that you would stir, uh, till up um, the soil of our of, of the people's hearts who we are talking to. Um, God, that you would make them receptive to the truth of the gospel. God, that you would make them receptive to the grace and mercy that you have extended to them through us because you have extended it us as well. God, help us in these things. Um, they are not going away. Uh, and we, uh, we want to be faithful in all of it. So we thank you, God. We praise you. We ask these things in your son's holy and precious name, Jesus Christ. Amen. We send this in the closing song.
encourage you um, in one more thing. So um, so we've talked about for years um, that special um, significance that we see in the scriptures um, about particularly at-risk people groups. And those people groups that we see over and over again are the orphan, the widow, and the sojourner, right? We've talked about that many times, okay? Um, we also talked about the fact just at, at Sanctity of Life Sunday this year, that if Roe versus Wade were to be overturned, that that would mean that there were more opportunities, more necessity to serve, okay? I'm sure if you're paying attention to anybody on social media, the typical line is, you know, you Christians, you care about life in the womb, but you don't care about the life um, once it's born. And as I have told you many times before, that is demonstrably nonsense, okay? The church is the, is the largest force for foster, adoption, pregnancy care, all those things in, in the United States, okay? We can get into statistics. We adopt three times more. We foster two times more, all those things, okay? But here's the deal. We can't sit on our laurels and those things and say, yeah, well, we're already doing more than anybody else. So then so be it. Okay. What I would say to you is this, is I would say you need to have conversations in your, with your spouses and in your families about how you can bring light into these things. Okay. That is a very personal question. Okay. Um, there is not any answer. There's not a thing where I say everybody in here needs to foster. Everybody in here needs to adopt. Everybody in here needs to serve in a certain way. There are no easy answers for any of those things, okay? But here's the deal. You need to be having those conversations. You need to be saying within your own family, with your children, with your spouse, you need to be saying, hey, what is our role in these things, okay? Um, that's all I'm going to give you. I would just encourage you to do that. Have conversations between um, each other and say, what is ways that we can be light in the darkness of, of the manifold issues that are going to develop when there are more children being born than there were before? We praise God for that. We praise God that they are alive. Okay. What are we going to do to help them? All right. Um, Hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you 
and give you peace. We'll see you next week.
which was hilarious. That's what you call it. Yeah. 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 Yeah.